This is the Thank You 72 podcast brought to you by the Wisconsin Alumni Association. This podcast salutes outstanding Badgers from Wisconsin's 72 counties. Here's your host, Todd Pritchard. It's one of the biggest topics of our time, the health of planet Earth. A key vital sign, the rising temperatures, global warming. Here are just a few facts. According to an independent analysis by NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the Earth's average global surface temperature in 2019 was the second warmest since record-keeping began in 1880. And January 2020 was the Earth's hottest start to a year in those 141 years. Using climate models and statistical analysis of global temperature data, scientists have concluded that this increase has been driven mostly by increased emissions in the atmosphere of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases produced by human activities. Rising temperatures in the atmosphere and ocean are contributing to a continued mass loss from Greenland and Antarctica, leading to rising ocean levels and an increase in some extreme events such as heat waves, intense precipitation, and wildfires. Case in point, Australia. UK scientists are saying the bushfires in Australia are a warning of what may be to come around the world. Fires are a natural feature of Australia, but record heat has made them more severe than usual, something that had been predicted. Climate scientists knew this was going to happen at some point, whether it was now or 10 years from now. Um, We were going to get this perfect storm and it was going to be pretty horrible. It is a race to save koalas, going tree to tree to find them. These are the survivors, burned, shocked, orphaned. Their habitats scorched by wildfires, their tragedy still unfolding. These poor animals, you you look around you, where can they go? Where's the nearest green tree? There isn't any. So there's, there's no food this way, and there's no food this way, there's no food this way. What are they gonna do? And this seems to be part of a pattern. A new study of wildfires around the world, from the Amazon rainforest to California, says human activity is raising temperatures and adding to the threat. The scientists involved in the research say the key now is to cut emissions of the gases that are heating the planet. In terms of the urgency, it's getting worse all the time. Uh, So the sooner we can uh, rein in emissions, the the sooner we can slow the increase uh, in in warming and increase climate change impacts. 50 years ago, a visionary University of Wisconsin alumnus started sounding the alarm about the impact of our choices which were damaging planet Earth. Some of his warnings were taken seriously, others ignored. His name was Gaylord Nelson. His mission to protect the environment literally changed the way we look at the world. One of his greatest legacies is Earth Day. On that first Earth Day, April 22, 1970, more than 20 million Americans took to the streets and demanded change. This is a CBS News special, Earth Day, a question of survival, with CBS News correspondent Walter Cronkite. Good evening. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. Earth Day, a day dedicated to enlisting all the citizens of a bountiful country in the common cause of saving life from the deadly byproducts of that bounty, the fouled skies, the filthy waters, the littered earth. 
The crowd heard calls for revolution, calls for working within the system. Earth Day's founder and co-sponsor, Senator Gaylord Nelson, offered a more specific plan. Elect an ecology Congress as the 92nd Congress, a Congress that will build bridges between our citizens and be between men and nature's systems instead of building more highways and dams and new weapon systems that escalate the arms race. Here's Gaylord Nelson, in his own words, reflecting back on that very first Earth Day. It turned out to be a, a bigger demonstration. I knew it would be big, or I was satisfied it would. Uh, it was m much larger than I had anticipated. It did force the issue into the political arena, into the political dialogue of the country, and it's been there uh, ever since. Over the next 10 years, Congress passed 28 major laws protecting air, water, endangered species, and wetlands. There was more environmental legislation in those 10 years than in the history of our country. It was known as the environmental decade. Nelson would continue to fight for environmental change, winning countless awards, including the Distinguished Alumni Award from the Wisconsin Alumni Association in 2004. He passed away in 2005. Now, in 2020, it's easy to see that Gaylord Nelson was clearly a visionary, years ahead of his time. Later in this podcast, we'll speak with Tom Ewell, Director Emeritus at the Nelson Institute here at UW-Madison. But we begin with a conversation with Gaylord Nelson's daughter, Tia Nelson, on her father's legacy. Tia is also a UW-Madison grad and has dedicated her life to environmental concerns, including global warming. Tia, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's great to be here, Todd. Your father was born June 4th, 1916 in Clear Lake, Wisconsin. That's up in Polk County. And it's along the Minnesota-Wisconsin border. Growing up there really shaped his life, right? Yeah, Clear Lake was, my father described it as an idyllic place to grow up. Um, small town like many other small towns in Wisconsin. Nature was his playground. He canoed and fished the St. Croix River, uh, which then became a, a place that he sought to protect when he became an elected official. Uh, these experiences shaped uh, who he was in, in really um, deep ways. His father was a doctor, right? Yes, my grandfather, Anton, was a doctor. My grandmother, Mary B., was a nurse. They ran the medical practice there in Clear Lake and knew everyone. And my grandmother was very active in the suffrage movement. And my father had some interesting experiences then. Remember, it was during the Depression, and the words that they used at the time to refer to people who were poor and moving across the country by train looking for work and work, they called them hobos at the time and it wasn't uncommon for and they operated a lot by word of mouth and it was known that my grandmother Mary B was a welcoming door to knock on and get a meal when they were train jumping across the country, and so it wasn't uncommon for my father to have um, experiences imbued with these progressive values that my grandfather and my grandmother held. Yeah, they were both very active in the Progressive Party. Very active in the Progressive Party. My grandfather was a huge admirer of Robert La Follette, Sr. and Jr., 
Uh, indeed, it was an experience driving from Clear Lake, Wisconsin to Amory, which Papa Bud- jokingly called the budding metropolis of Polk County. They drove in Grandpa's Model T Ford from Clear Lake to Amory and saw my father at age 10 sitting on his father's shoulders, watched a long speech from Bob LaFollette Jr. speaking from the back of a whistle-stop train, which is the way politicians frequently campaigned back then. And my father was so uh, moved by the and affected by the experience that right then and there he decided at age 10 he wanted to grow up and become a United States Senator like Bob LaFollette Jr. He saw it as a way to help people and to implement these progressive values that he looked up to. So it was a really remarkable thing for a 10-year-old to, to decide then and there that my, my father jokes that Grandpa asked him as they were driving back what my father thought of the experience, and he said something to the effect of, I, I was very impressed, I want to grow up and, and help people uh, as a public servant the way Bob LaFollette Jr. talks about, but I'm afraid by the time I grow up, he will have solved all the problems. <laughs> uh, suffice to say, that did not turn out to be the, the challenge he faced. There were plenty of problems to solve by the time he got to the United States Senate. So he went off to San Jose. He got a bachelor's degree in political science, and then he came back to Wisconsin, right, okay. get his law degree, went and joined the Army, and he met your mom, Carrie, as part of, uh, I think he was in Okinawa at the time. Their falling in love occurred in Okinawa. They had actually met briefly and gone on a date, at least one, maybe a couple of dates, in Bridgetown Gap, Pennsylvania, at a military facility where people were being housed before being sent off to Okinawa. And when my parents, so they had a date, and mother, uh, how much of this is true and how much of it is family lore, you know, is an open question. Both my parents are good rencontreurs. Um, but uh, Laura had mother claims that uh, Papa fell asleep in the movie and didn't show a ton of interest. But in any case, they both were sent to the same place, ironically, you know, or serendipitously, in Okinawa. And when Papa was getting off the ship there, my mother was already there, and the disbursement officer said something to the effect of, didn't you date, you know, didn't you have a date with Carrie Lee Dotson back in Bridgetown Gap? You know, she's here on the island. And he went and looked her up. He uh, imitated... uh, claimed that he was a general to get through some rigmarole to get uh, over to the nurses' quarters and uh, called up my mom. After the war, your dad ran as a Democrat and he was elected to the state Senate and then governor. While in Madison, he championed the outdoor recreation program, which set aside money from a one-cent cigarette tax to purchase a million acres of parklands and wetlands all around Wisconsin. That program became a model for other states. Some even gave your dad the title of the conservation governor. Yes, it was a really remarkable initiative, the first of its kind in the country, and it was considered so important in its and so pioneering that many states examined it and sought to replicate it in the sense that they wanted to create a dedicated funding source to protect public land, uh, to provide access, boating and recreation access, hunting, fishing, 
silent sports, though I don't suppose they called them that then. And the National Boating Magazine, which had a very wide circulation, I can't now remember what the number was, but National Boating Magazine had on the cover a map of Wisconsin with every county and an image of my father overlaid it. And the title was, as I recall, All Eyes on Wisconsin. And um, my father liked to joke that, one, and the, you know, it was wildly popular um, with Democrats and Republicans alike. And my father worked very hard to ensure that the benefit pro, the program benefited every county in the, all, all 72 counties in the state, that there was something for everyone in it in terms of protecting our precious natural resources and providing the public recreation access. So he became a U.S. senator then and took his battle for the environment on a national level. Everyone who was elected to public office back in the old days before we had digital stuff had someone in their press office clipping important news stories, both the coverage of, of whoever the elected official was, in this case my father, but also other news stories uh, that might be important or relevant for him to see. So he had this, in essence, scrapbook with all of these clippings, with all of this press about what a remarkable conservation leader he was as governor. And he took that with him to Washington, and he tried to get fellow members of the Senate, where he was elected, as you said, in 1958. We moved to Washington from Madison in the winter of 1959. And... He tried to convince other members of the Senate to care about the issue, and the argument he made was, listen, this is a really popular issue with the American public. Look at the great press and attention and recognition I've gotten. Join me in this effort. And he was very frustrated. He did not make uh, much progress. Uh, He did manage to get, um, I believe, with the help of Robert Kennedy, with whom he was seatmates in the United States Senate uh, for a time, to get a message to his brother, who was Sir John F. Kennedy, who was serving as president. I have a copy of the letter that Arthur Schlesinger, who was the president's chief of staff, wrote to my father saying, I understand you have some ideas for President Kennedy to talk about conservation. Please send me a memo with those ideas. Now, the president agreed to a conservation tour, which my father put together for him. The, it was a great disappointment. It was not uh, successful. It did not achieve what my father had hoped. And the tour was cut short due to a lack of enthusiasm and a, uh, on a lot of fronts. And so in the, in several months later, President Kennedy was assassinated. So after the failed conservation tour, though I hasten to add there was quite the consolation prize. The president uh, flew into Duluth, Minnesota in Air Force One and then flew by helicopter to Ashland, Wisconsin, where he was greeted by 10,000 people larger than the population of the city, the only time I think a president had visited Ashland, and expressed support for uh, the Apostle Island National Lakeshore protection. And the Apostle Islands is a place my father experienced as a child. Again, these are touchstones for him. The experiences he had as a child became 
a part of his conservation efforts as, as uh, a public servant and elected official. And now uh, George Bush signed into law the Gaylord Nelson Wilderness Area. So 18 of the 22 islands, it's the largest freshwater archipelago in the world. It's just an extraordinary place, my favorite place in the world, really. And I've traveled quite a bit. I it's still, there's no place I'd rather be than in Bayfield or kayaking and in the Apostle Islands. But uh, Kennedy uh, went up there and expressed support for protecting that precious place. And it took many years, I think. It's a testament to my father's perseverance in the face of defeat uh, to just keep on working at it. I think the Apostle Island National Lakeshore Act uh, probably took seven years, maybe 12 drafts. It's a very challenging process. But in any case, the conservation tour with the president didn't achieve what he had hoped. And in the ensuing years, after 1963 to 1969, my father kept trying to think of an idea that might resonate with the American public and uh, galvanize them in a way that calls, uh, uh, captures the attention of elected officials. And he picked up a Ramparts magazine, and the cover story was about how anti-war teachings on college campuses across the country were changing the dialogue on the morality of the Vietnam War. And that's when he had an aha moment. He had gone out to Santa Barbara to inspect an oil spill. He was on an airplane. He picked up this magazine, read the cover story, and thought to himself, I'm going to call for a teaching on the environment. Students have this power uh, uh, to really change how politicians think about issues. If, If they can do it around the war, they can do it around the environment. And he called for an environmental quote-unquote, teaching, and it was successful beyond his wildest dreams. And that was the birth of Earth Day. That's right. That's right. Senator Nelson was responsible for so much environmental legislation, clean air, clean water acts, fuel efficiency in cars, ban on DDT, the list goes on. He was also an outspoken critic of the Vietnam War and made it to President Nixon's famed enemies list. Did, did he ever talk about that? He liked that letter, the article listing him on the top 10 enemy list so much that he had it replicated and framed. And it is still prominently displayed in uh, the little library of the house my mother lives in and that I grew up in. So he certainly was not a fan of Richard Nixon's, though we should give uh, President Nixon some credit. He, after all, was president during the first Earth Day. He created the Environmental Protection Agency. And his words when he created EPA to protect our rights, which is the way the president saw it, our rights to breathe clean air and our rights to drink clean water, the words he used in uh, signing that into law would resonate uh, still today. Tia, tell me about the work you're doing now with the Outrider Foundation. Well, we're doing a number of exciting projects to communicate with the public about the challenges of climate change and the opportunities to address them. Uh, Focused a lot on telling stories about climate change solutions. Um, I think people need to have a sense of hope and empowerment that they can be a part of addressing this challenge. And where can people get more information about Outrider? At our website, outrider.org, and you'll find a lot of 
beautiful content there, a lot of good information on the science, some good stories. You'll find the Brent Suter story, the Milwaukee Brewers pitcher, who's become our sports ambassador and, and is doing so much to advocate for environmental stewardship. And so you'll find science-based content and stories from other voices that help amplify the call to action. And it's important message and a really good resource for a lot of people. I encourage you to take a look. What do you believe your dad's lasting legacy is? Well, there's no question that he's most well-known as the founder of Earth Day, and that will be forever an enduring part of his legacy. Less known to some is that he was a very strong civil rights advocate and consumer protection advocate. And anyone who knew him knew that he had a marvelous sense of humor and a marvelous way of uh, reaching across the aisle and finding agreement with people who might have different uh, political leanings or different backgrounds than his own. And but undoubtedly, uh, being the founder of Earth Day will will be his biggest legacy. And but there are, you know, the Saint Croix River Act, the Wild and Scenic River, getting the Saint Croix River and the Namakagan River into the Wild and Scenic River Act, so something he was very proud of. The Apostle Island National Lakeshore Act, something he was very proud of. The other environmental legislation uh, that you mentioned, uh, banning DDT, calling for increased fuel efficiency in automobiles, working on the Clean Air Act and amendments to the Clean Water Act, the Wilderness Act, all of these show someone who, who toiled for years to advance causes uh, that serve the public. But surely the biggest will be founder of Earth Day. Jan Nelson, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and talking about your father and your efforts, too. Oh, my pleasure, Todd. Thanks for being interested in telling the story. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Chelsea Schlecht, and I'm the editor of The Flamingo. The Flamingo is a weekly digital newsletter for UW alumni. We bring you the best news and stories from the UW, expertly curated and delivered right to your inbox every Friday morning. Do you consider yourself a relatively fun person? Do you think UW-Madison is pretty great? And do you ever find yourself wishing you were more connected with what's happening on campus? If you answered yes or maybe to any of these questions, then we think you'll love the Friday Flamingo. And hey, even if you answered no, we think you should give us a chance anyway. Visit uwalumni.com slash flamingle to join the flock. Now back to the Thank You 72 podcast. Once again, here's Todd Pritchard, Director of Media and Public Relations at the Wisconsin Alumni Association. The Gaylord Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies here at UW-Madison is named in honor of Senator Nelson's work and his love of the environment. Tom Ewell is the Director Emeritus at the Nelson Institute. He joins us now by phone from Utah. Tom, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. First of all, tell us about the Nelson Institute and its mission. The current mission really reflects what the mission has been over its 50-year history, and that is to build partnerships and stimulate and synergize uh, excellence in the three legs of the stool that are typical of the UW campus. That's research, teaching, and service. And with the goal of of making UW-Madison a world leader in addressing environmental challenges. It combines the humanities, social sciences, and natural sciences and bridges them together, as uh, Aldo Leopold uh, has, has written 
the disciplines are separated only in the classroom, step outside, and they are immediately fused. And the Nelson Institute does that. It's essentially a cross-connecting sort of matrix kind of organization that can bring together easily people from a variety of disciplines, departments, schools, and colleges across the campus to address problems that single disciplines alone are not really sufficient. And so it's it's a catalyst. And it also, uh, the, the Institute also establishes these partnerships, not only on the campus, but uh, in the local communities across the state, nationally, and there are international collaborations, too, that are a critical part of the Nelson Institute's activities and have been for uh, actually several decades now. You yourself, Tom, have been involved in the environment for, for your entire you know career. Where do you think the environment and the health of planet Earth stands right now? Well, I try not to be pessimistic, but there are certainly some very significant and urgent environmental situations that the planet faces that we must have the courage and wisdom to address. And when you think of what the major issues are, things like climate change and the effects that this is going to have on us all long-term, biodiversity and the loss of biodiversity is a critical element as well. And I, as a biological scientist, uh, am particularly aware of that. And then the quality of the environment in which we live, things like the effects of uh, pollution on the landscape and on our own health is also a significant problem. And these are things that will require vision and courage at all levels, from individual to local, state, national, international, to address because they're urgent and the price that we'll ultimately pay for neglecting these problems and not addressing them is going to be severe. You mentioned the vision, and it's ironic, during a 1990 speech at the National Press Club in Washington, Senator Nelson spoke about the need for that kind of far-sighted, bold, courageous leadership at all levels, but especially he talked about leadership in the White House and and the president. I want to play you a clip from that speech from 1990. Here's Senator Nelson. Very few presidents have been afforded the opportunity to achieve greatness. Those who did achieved it because they successfully met a major threat to the security of the nation. War, social turmoil, economic chaos. These were the challenges faced by Washington, Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt. Now, for the first time in history, the first time in history, the nation is confronted with a challenge far, far more serious than any war or economic depression in the history of our nation. The president has a golden opportunity to grasp this issue and steer the country on a path that will preserve the integrity of our sustaining ecosystem and the stability of our economic system. This uh, some president, sometime, some president, sometime, must face the challenge on this issue. Let us hope it starts with President Bush. This will require the president to persuade the country to 
to look to the long view of our future as a nation. It will require that he concern himself with the welfare of the next generation and those who follow rather than just the next election. The current administration is rolling back some environmental protection rules. Just a few weeks ago, President Trump called environmental activists prophets of doom who just want to, quote, control every aspect of our lives. Do you think we'll ever see a president who really takes on the environment as a key issue? Well, I'm certainly hopeful. And in the past, there have been some surprising positive things that have that have happened. You think of the legislation that was promoted by Richard Nixon that brought us the Clean Air and Clean Water Act. And some major environmental advances to undo some of the, the really unfortunate things that were happening at that time. And in fairness to him, despite his subsequent uh, disaster, uh, those are positive things that have happened. And I'm certainly hopeful, hopeful that they might happen again. So I think it's incumbent on us as citizens to pay attention to what uh, candidates are saying. And these are not only at the national level, uh, to see if we'll get a charismatic, visionary president out of the current mix of candidates that we have. At least it's being discussed. And uh, I think that that's encouraging on the side of the Democratic candidates anyway. And uh, I think there's some hope there that may provide the vision and the charisma to move us forward. Of course, for that to happen, it's also got to happen in the Congress, and it's also got to happen at uh, local levels, right down to our local communities. So a president can frame the issue and inspire us, but action has to happen at all levels. You spoke about many of the concerns right now. Obviously, global warming is is one of the top headlines that we see in a, a daily basis now. And But it, it seems like, and I want to get your thoughts on this, it seems like we're still struggling to even get a consensus on if this is a human-made problem. Do you find that troubling? Yes, it is. And I prefer the term global climate change. Global warming is certainly an important component part of that change. But now that I'm talking to you from the southwestern United States, shifts in precipitation are also a very critical part of what is happening. But I think the public in general is beginning to recognize what the climate scientists have been saying now, really for decades, that the climate is changing. We are inadvertently doing a major experiment with the climate which ultimately supports life on this planet and our well-being. And I, th- I think there is significant movement in here in the United States. We've been behind in terms of recognition of this as a serious problem compared to, say, Europe, where active uh, measures are being taken, and even in other parts of the world where there is recognition. So I'm hopeful that we're moving in the right direction. And encouragingly, some of the impetus for these changes are coming for, for younger people. 
And, of course, they've got the most uh, at stake because they're the ones that are going to have to live through the consequences. But I think some of the dramatic climatic things that have occurred and some of the disasters have underscored that the fact that changes are occurring, beginning to occur now, and uh, we're ultimately going to pay a pretty terrible price if we ignore them. Tom Ewell from the Nelson Institute, Director Emeritus, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Even though it's uh, talk about what could be a discouraging situation, but I think there is room for justifiable optimism. We end this podcast with the words of Gaylord Nelson, who was once asked, what is the most important thing I can do as a parent to help the environment? The most important thing you could do is, starting when the kids are two and three years old, impress upon them the the necessity for developing an environmental understanding and conscience because they're going to be the leaders in the future. And without it, it'll be politically impossible to do what we need to do. Thanks for listening to the Thank You 72 podcast. For more interviews with amazing UW alumni, visit thankyou72.org. That's thankyou72.org.